This episode is brought to you by Set for Life Insurance. Listen, docs, one of the first steps we took to pay off our student loan debt was realizing we paid way too much for our disability insurance. That all changed when we found Set for Life Insurance. They helped us with a customized insurance policy that met our needs and most of all, budget. To learn more, check out setforlifeinsurance.com. This episode is brought to you by Physician CEO. Finally, a business program for busy doctors just like you. Get the skills of branding, marketing, entrepreneurship, and combine those with your gifts as a physician. Be known as a doc outside the box and define your future. Learn more at physician-ceo.com forward slash D-O-T-B. was good, everyone. Thank you for tuning in. And I just want to quickly thank everyone who saw my video on Twitter, as well as Instagram, about the previous episode, episode 156, where me and my wife, Dr. Renee, we talked about what it's like to have two physicians get infected, as well as how it affected our family life, our kids, and so forth. We got a lot of feedback from a lot of doctors, even people who are not within the field, just reaching out, just asking how we're doing, happy that, you know, we made it on the other side. So we just wanted to thank everyone for reaching out. Man, we got a ton of downloads in one day, almost broke a record. So just uber happy that a lot of people embraced this episode, uber happy that people reached out to us through Instagram and various other social media avenues. And, you know, that leads me to my next point that, you know, a lot of times, particularly with what's going on with social distancing, if you're home from work, if you're not in the medical field, maybe if you're not on the front lines, your hours have been reduced, your elective cases have been decreased. So you may be spending a lot more time at home and you may feel like you're isolated. And particularly people who are not in the healthcare field, you know, definitely they are at home. They are probably feeling isolated. So I'm charging all of you listeners right now, make sure you reach out to someone who you haven't talked to in a minute, right? Whether that's reaching out to someone who's in your family, reaching out to a friend that you haven't talked to in a long time. It's really important nowadays that as we're feeling isolated, as we are not getting a chance to reach out and get outside and get that ability to interact with people, you know, people who may have some psychological issues, people who just may be feeling lonely at this time, this is a good opportunity to reach out to someone before it's too late. So please, before you let the day end after listening to this episode, I want you all to reach out to someone, let them know how you feel, let them know that you haven't seen them and you just want to hang out or you want to just drop a line and just see what they are doing. I also am really proud of what I've been seeing on TV, what I've been seeing on podcasts, YouTube, and other various forms of social media. I've been seeing a lot of our colleagues, a lot of our doctors really, you know, speaking up on our behalf, unfiltered, telling people what it really is, what the truth is really going on out there in the trenches or in these streets, as I like to say. <laughs> So I want you all to support those colleagues. Make sure if you're seeing them on various news sources and you know what they're saying is legit, follow them on Twitter, follow them on Instagram, reach out to them, tell them what's up. And also at the same time for you also, don't just, you know, shut yourself out, start a podcast, get yourself on YouTube or start, you know, messaging and leaving important tweets out there. It's really important that we use our voice and not allow, you know, this opportunity to pass without the public just knowing how we feel 
not just about COVID-19, but also what we feel about hospitals, what we feel about lack of PPE, what we feel about being on the front lines and not being able to see family. Like we need to be voicing, you know, our thoughts consistently on this because hopefully there's going to be a point when or where COVID-19 is not going to be part of our vocab anymore. I hope that it occurs very soon. You know, you never know. But also at the same time, when that occurs, you know, the lights are going to go away. The requests to get on these different shows are going to go away. But we got to continue the momentum, keep it going by having our own platform. So that's enough that I'm going to say about that. And I just want to move on to our next guest, who I'm really excited about. My next guest is Dr. Alexia Gaffney, who is a triple board certified physician. We're talking about internal medicine, pediatrics, as well as infectious disease, which is so important right now. So you know she knows her shit. (laughs) Okay, so I brought her on the show to dispel some myths, to give us her thoughts on how long she thinks this is going to last, what her thoughts were when this really reached our shores back in January. And, you know, she's going to be talking about some other things. Docs, you're going to want to hear this, particularly if you're a locums doc. You're going to want to listen because she's going to talk about what's been going on now, where if you're doing locums in states or in areas that don't have a huge infection rate with COVID-19, but you live in an area that has a high infection rate. Some of these hospitals are asking these doctors to self-quarantine for two weeks or so on their own dime. So she's going to talk about, is that evidence-based or not? It's just so much more that she's going to talk about. But the thing that you're going to notice about Dr. Alexia is that, you know, she brings it to you real. She brings it to you raw. She's very entertaining. She's infectious. She's dynamic. She's not your average infectious disease doctor. I'll tell you that right now. But I do have to preface this with the fact that I did shut things down about a month ago. I did this interview about a month ago. And then shortly afterwards, I got sick. The whole household got sick. So I wasn't able to put this episode out until now. So some small things have changed. Make sure you pay attention and just know that. And listen, as always, I love it when you share the episodes with other people. Make sure you leave feedback. You know, I love it when you leave feedback on Apple Podcasts. That really helps the show to grow. And look, let's get on with this interview. I've talked enough. Introducing Dr. Alexia Gaffney, talking about that Rona. What's going on, everyone? This is Dr. Nee. I'm really excited to have triple board certified infection disease specialist, Dr. Alexia Gaffney on Docs Outside the Box. What's up? What's good? How you doing? I am doing wonderful, Dr. Nee. Thanks so much for having me on your show. I'm really excited about this because I normally don't have people talking about like the sign of the times or what's going on, like currently from a medical standpoint, you know, or from the news standpoint. But as we know, things are so relevant right now and it affects us in so many different ways. So this is just apropos for right now. These are the times. Absolutely. COVID has really changed the game. It has affected everyone and everybody. And we were previously in a situation where that was China's problem. And we didn't have to worry about it. That's exactly how I thought about it. It was just Not like, me. I really? was like, this is coming. <laughs> what made you think that, okay, this is coming? You know, actually, I'm a physician also, obviously. And even me and like everybody else is like, they'll stay in China. They'll handle it. Or it'll be just, you know, like SARS in the past and so forth. It's kind of limited, but you see it's coming. But is it going to get to the point where, you know, I got this book right here, The Hot Zone. I feel like we're like a couple of steps from this book right here, The Hot Zone. Yeah. You yeah. know, I feel like that's how it is. I can't even get a pizza right now. Right. Right. So you thought it would get like this. You always knew. I did. So when I was following the story and the rest of us were following the story and I saw the numbers of cases, 
I was like, okay, as an infectious disease doctor, like I actually on occasion think about SARS and think about MERS because I have patients who are traveling internationally for business, for pleasure, but they come see me as an infectious disease doctor when they come home sick or the antibiotics or antiviral that they were given in China, Hong Kong, Japan, wherever, when they were there for business, didn't quite cut it. So I consider these kinds of infections all the time. When they were saying it was a SARS or MERS-like illness, and actually even before they said it, I was like, oh, this sounds kind of like SARS or MERS, but we've never seen that many cases. And then they started calling it SARS-2 or MERS-like syndrome before they settled on the name COVID-2019. So knowing that this is a SARS or MERS-like illness that was capable of direct human-to-human transmission and that it was spreading rapidly, to me, it was naive to believe that an American citizen, whether they were Asian, Black, white, or whatever, whether they lived there, traveled between the two continents, or just were there on business, to me, it was just obvious that at some point people were going to bring this home with them or bring it with them as they traveled for business. Then when I really knew we were in for it is when that cruise ship docked in Japan and it had 600 people on it. And some of those people were American citizens. And the response was to fly them home, which I think was appropriate. But nobody said, what did they do with those folks on board? So I'm like, okay, if this thing can spread rampantly person to person, just out in the public doing everyday life, right? It's only a matter of time before it hits our crowded cities and we're in the same trouble. And if it could spread on cruise ships, I mean, I love a good cruise. I'm always cruising with my doctor friends. We do CMEOs on the ship. So how could we possibly believe that what happened on the Diamond Princess couldn't happen on any Carnival or Royal Caribbean or whatever cruise ship that we like to hop on and travel on? So in January, I was already plotting how I was getting out of my April cruise with my mom for her birthday. Really? Yeah. I'm like, how am I going to tell my mom I'm not getting on no cruise ship with her for her 65th birthday? It's a milestone. She's going to be heartbroken, but I can't afford to be quarantined on a ship for two weeks and then quarantined two more weeks when I get home. And that's if I don't get sick on board. I'm not getting on a cruise ship. So, Dr. Lexi, you knew before everybody. So how many packs of toilet tissue you got in your garage and hand sanitizers (laughs) you've been stocking up? You the problem. No. (laughs) (laughs) I know you got in the background. I can see that. So literally, I got home yesterday and I couldn't see my toilet paper on the shelf. And it's just segue. And your wife could speak to this because she grew up in Brooklyn, just like I did, East New York. So we used to run out of stuff Boy, what, when what I was say? a kid. East no joke? Is that? East what? New York. East New York. <laughs> <laughs> Talk to Renee. She knows what I'm talking about. So everything that I ever ran out of as a kid, I hoard as an adult. I already just have too much toilet paper in my house, considering there's only two to four butts to wipe at any given time. So I drove home yesterday, pulled in my garage, looked at my shelf, and I'm like, where's my toilet paper? I know my nanny didn't use the last of the toilet paper and didn't tell me. She should have told me when we was down to four or five rolls. But what happened was somebody took it off the shelf. So now I'm like counting. Let me see what we work with. We got 18 rolls of toilet paper. We're okay. You're good. good. Okay. (laughs) And then as far as hand sanitizer, this whole antibacterial soap and hand sanitizer thing has my mind blown. I'm like, have you people not been washing your hands all along? You don't sit down in a restaurant and use a little squirt of hand sanitizer. Nope. You don't sanitize your hands when you come out the grocery store. Like nope. this is so normal and second nature to me. Well, I don't have 17,700 bottles of hand sanitizer 
hidden anywhere, I could probably round up a hundred bottles of hand sanitizer in my house easily, just as an IV doctor in general. And then when I became a sick cancer patient ID doctor, oh, then I was really crazed about hand sanitizer. So, you know, I have it hanging on all my purses or inside of all of my purses. I make chemo kits for women who are undergoing chemotherapy. And so I always include hand sanitizer in those. So in preparation for that, like there's an obscene amount of hand sanitizer and facial tissues in my house. Like you would just think like I'm some kind of weird, creepy hoarder. So look, you mentioned it just a little bit. I actually didn't get a chance to do a formal introduction on you. So I want you to take a moment to uh, let us know about you because, you know, obviously, you know, you are very relevant right now, but you're also a doc outside the box. So take a moment to let the audience know more about you, please. Absolutely. So I am Dr. Alexia. As Dr. Nee already mentioned, I am a triple board certified physician. I am trained and boarded in internal medicine, pediatrics, and infectious disease. At the age of 37, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And as a result of that diagnosis, I basically took to social media and shared my breast cancer journey because I could not find young women who look like me going through this experience to gather information from or to know what to expect. Now, one thing that I had going for me was as a physician, I was able to join a physician group with women with all kinds of cancers and get some helpful tips. But I also realized like, how unfair is it for us to just hoard this information that's so valuable to so many people amongst ourselves? So I started sharing my tips and tricks that I used to like cope and survive through cancer treatment, different supplements that I would use to manage my chemotherapy side effects and some of the consequences of chemotherapy. And then the last thing that I did is I actually sought some alternative and holistic care. And I was able to bounce those ideas off of my oncologist as well as make some sound clinical decisions for myself about what things were okay to use and what things weren't okay to use. So out of that came Warrior Wellness and Nutrition, which is my business. And so I do speaking and education and coaching and provide what I call warrior wellness kits or warrior crates to women undergoing cancer treatments. And so at the end of the day, what I do is create healing pathways so that others can experience total health and wellness, mind, body, and spirit. I love it. I love it. Now, you mentioned talking about putting information out there right now. Mm -hmm. It looks like there's just so much misinformation out there. It seems like almost like the threat of misinformation is just as bad as the pandemic that we're going through right now, right? Yeah. What do you say about those things? Is that just as bad as like people not washing their hands and, you know, all of these different WhatsApp myths and you mm -hmm. know, myths on Facebook? Like, what do you say about all these different things? Because it's crazy right now, some of the things they say out there. Yeah. So fear is contagious as well. Like Hate marijuana is contagious. Cures. <laughs> like marijuana could take care of the gout and the <laughs> Yeah, right. Right. Black people can't get it. I'm glad yeah, I heard that, about that, that myth yeah. quickly got dispelled. Just the way that the media is reporting. So this whole idea that this is only a disease of people who are 60 years and older and the rest of us don't have much to worry about. Like, I really wish that they would change their language around that even though it may be true that the vast majority of cases may be mild illness, the severity of severe cases is so bad, so extreme, and at a larger percentage than we typically see it for other viral infections, 
like the flu, we're going to overwhelm our healthcare systems. We are going to stress our resources. I feel like if we had responded the way we're responding right now, back in January, we wouldn't be closing businesses. We wouldn't be putting people out of work if we had already socially distanced ourselves before and if we had already prepared from the fallout. But the response was that this is the Chinese virus or, you know, whatever awful things are being said politically. And so the uptake in an actual active approach to containing this infection was so delayed. We're three months behind this thing already. So how long do you think this is going to last based off of how our response is right now? Like, are there models that you and your specialty you guys run so you can tell like how long it's going to take before the worst comes or have we gotten to that point yet? So we aren't at the worst of it. I think that we're in for a good at least three to four months of really hard times. Really? Yeah. We're only 10 days behind Italy in terms of when they saw their first cases and when we saw our first cases. And if you look at some of the number trees for where they started actively testing and screening people, how the number of cases just grew exponentially, it won't be long before we are in the you know tens of thousands or potentially millions of cases if we don't socially distance ourselves and if we don't take this thing seriously. People are all up in arms. Oh, the numbers are skewed. The percentage could be much less. Actually, I think that the number could be much higher because remember in the beginning, China didn't have testing. In the beginning, Iran didn't have testing. In the beginning, Italy didn't have testing. So I'm certain that there are people who died of pneumonia that- Mm, They actually had coronavirus. That actually had coronavirus and it just wasn't identified as that virus. So I think that there's probably more deaths linked to this thing than we- are going to be able to account for. And that needs to be considered as well as just the folks who are going to get identified who have very mild cases. Okay, so break it down for us so if we'll ever be broke, right? (laughs) Now, if you're a Love Jones fan, you know where I got that from. So (laughs) let me ask you this question. Like, you know, some people say, well, this is not as bad as the flu or it's not as virulent as the flu. Like, what's the deal? Is this stronger than the flu? How does that work? Tell us about that. So we think it's worse than the flu. In terms of when it does cause severe disease, I mean, if you get a post-flu pneumonia, the pneumonia is typically from a bacterial superinfection. The coronavirus, when it sets in, it just sets in and causes pneumonia and there's nothing you can do about it, right? If you got your post-flu pneumonia and you picked it up in the community, we're going to give you some Zithromax and have you come back for a lung check in a week. If you got hospitalized from your flu and you got pneumonia there, then we're going to give you whatever your hospital's cocktail is for healthcare-associated pneumonia, whether that's vancozosin, vancocephapine, or whatever, vanco plus some other strong gram-negative coverage, because we know on the other side of the flu, we're treating you for a bacterial pneumonia. So we have a specific therapy to offer you. We do have cases where people develop the flu and they get septic, they get multi-organ failure, they get respiratory failure, they go on ECMO and they die. We definitely see that. But we see that on the order of like 0.1 to 0.3%. And that's when we have something to treat with, right? We still have Tamiflu and other antivirals to arm ourselves with, plus to treat the complications of the flu. We have nothing but ventilatory support and blood pressure support. And our flu patients are getting that as well, but we don't have anything to give specifically to stop or slow down this virus. 
So we're seeing the percentage rate of deaths on the order between 2.6% and maybe 3.4, 3.5%. But Italy has far surpassed that number. Those were the numbers that we saw in Wuhan, China. And when we saw that in Wuhan, China, we were saying, okay, it's worse than the flu because there's several fold more cases of critical illness and death related to this infection. And when we reach worldwide spread or pandemic proportions, we're going to overwhelm our systems. Well, in Italy, I think they said the percentage of deaths is like 9% at this point. 9%? Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Italy is running out of vents. They have patients in just big open spaces, big open makeshift ICUs where, you know, they're cohorting the patients. Everybody has the same thing. And the providers are just working day and night trying to keep people alive. But you can't keep someone in respiratory failure alive if you don't have a vent to put them on. Man, wow. And I know that they're currently working on vaccine right now where they're doing some testing. I just saw a picture from Kamala Harris on her IG Mm -hmm. where she showed a picture of one of the patients who are taking the vaccine right now. Yeah. I think they have 25 patients who volunteered to be tested for the vaccine. That's if the vaccine is even successful. Thus far, we haven't successfully, well, maybe we didn't even consider coronavirus vaccines, right? Because when we think of plain old boring coronaviruses that just cause our common seasonal coughs and colds and upper respiratory illnesses, that's not something we're going to spend the time and energy vaccinating against. And then look at the flu, right? We have to update the vaccine every year. Is this going to be that kind of a situation where we're going to have a mutating virus that will need to reproduce a new strain of vaccine. But what we know from vaccine trials is, right, there's a phase one, there's a phase two, there's a phase three, and then it takes months to produce the lots of vaccines that you need to vaccinate the masses. So even if they fast-tracked or they broke the rules, they skipped steps because of how severe this infection is, I don't see a vaccine being available for at least a year. And now a word from our sponsor. Meet Dr. Arthur Cummings. He's a busy ophthalmologist practicing all the way in Dublin, Ireland. Recently, he finished physician CEO. Check out what got him to jump on the transatlantic flight to participate in this program. My initial response would simply be just do it. This is one of those programs that is so good. It's very likely to be the best education you've ever received. And you realize then as a physician, how little we really know about our businesses, even though we're running businesses that are quite large. And the level of training is so fantastic. The education is so good. The faculty is immaculate and you're in a group of people who are like-minded. So just the entire environment is an amazing learning experience and really a good incubator for growing your practice. So if you're a physician who's looking to start your own venture or even lead your practice or department, then you can't afford to miss this opportunity. Class is filling up. Learn more at physician-ceo.com forward slash D-O-T-B. As professionals, medical professionals, medical students, residents, attendings, how do we protect ourselves besides using all the precautions and so forth? How do we make sure that we're not getting, you know, family members sick when we go home? Right. How do we make sure that we're okay now? So, you know, of course, when and where you can get personal protective equipment because hospitals are running out and they're running out quickly. So one of the CDC recommendations was that 
providers be allowed to reuse their N95 respirators? And I think possibly their face shields if they weren't grossly soiled, right? So literally getting your hands on personal protective equipment and keeping it safe. Put it in a plastic bag because you don't want it to fall on the floor or, you know, you don't want it laying around unprotected on surfaces in your hospital or your office. with your breath, thank you. (laughs) Listen, you need to be passing out under the funk of your own breath. (laughs) The fact that the public is just outside walking around in N95s, I'm like, you know what? It kills me to get through a 30-minute consult with an N95 on. And yeah, you're reliving your lunch for 30 minutes while you're trying to talk to somebody, uh-huh. you're trying to breathe through that thing. I'm like, y'all are just willfully strolling around in this thing. So the public should be rolling in masks or they should not be wearing masks. Let's clear this up. So the CDC guidelines, the World Health Organization guidelines is that the public should not be walking around in masks. Just that. If you need it's demonst- because it doesn't work at all. So some protection is better than no protection, right? But what they don't want is people to have this false sense of security that I have this mask on, so I'm good. Meanwhile, you're touching the mask, you're adjusting the mask. Maybe you're less vigilant about washing your hands because you figure my nose and mouth are covered, so I'm good. But remember, the mask is not a respirator, right? It's not airtight. And even if you have an N95 respirator, we get fit tested in the hospital to wear these respirators and they're not comfortable to breathe in. So if you just walking down the block, walking through Costco, having conversation with your friend with your respirator on is probably not an appropriate seal because it's not comfortable to breathe in those masks when they're properly fit. Yeah, I agree with you there. I agree with you there. So at that point, I think like your N95, if you're not properly fit, is about as good as a regular old boring surgical mask. And I think that it can offer some level of protection, but it is not going to fully prevent you from getting a coronavirus infection. And that is why they're saying it doesn't help us to wear masks. What is really more important is to stay about at home. Can I curse on this show? Of course you can. This is Docs Outside the Box. You do whatever you want. Keep it real. What I really wanted to say is stay your ass at home. There you go, (laughs) Miss Superstar. You was on Roland Martin like 48 hours ago. Come on now. You can do whatever you want. Yeah. So the social distancing is more important. It's more important for us to not bring it home to our loved ones. If we made it out of the hospital, right? You went to work all day. You're on the front lines. You're taking care of people. You wore your N95. You wore your face shield. You did your gowns. You donned and doffed all of your equipment. You did all the right hand hygiene and you made it out of the hospital. What can you do from there, right? So really touch as little things that you could touch as possible. I was in a hotel last weekend. I was pushing elevator buttons with my elbows, like, <laughs> you know. I got you. Because on average, people touch their face 120 times an hour, whether they notice it or not. This is just something I learned in infectious disease training about how infections like staph and MRSA spread. And if you put a camera in like, let's say a large college lecture hall and you just watch people for an hour and watch the number of times they touch their face, it's 120 times in an hour without even thinking about it. Maybe because now we're all conscious and hypervigilant, maybe we might bring it down to 40 or 80 times an hour that we're touching our face, but we're going to do it. Now throw a mask in the mix that's slipping, falling, getting caught under your glasses, making your nose itch. You know, maybe you want to stick a piece of gum in your mouth under there. 
maybe you're like people on the airplane, you wore the mask, but now the lady's handing out snacks. And so let me get a Coca-Cola and some Cheez-Its. Now you got the mask on to eat a snack. Like these are the kinds what of things you that taking, Dr. Alexia? They're giving you all the Cheez-Its. We're going to get luxury food. <laughs> you just get water on the planes I fly. Oh, Lord, you got to stay off them spirit flights. Some <laughs> Delta or some JetBlue. <laughs> Yo, but it's the sign of the times, right? Soon we're going to be yeah. paying for the bathroom. Right, 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 right. Blue Spirit one time, actually heading to a cruise. And the flights were just so outrageous. I'm like, we just don't have to do this. My daughter was like, Mommy, what kind of plane is this? They didn't even finish the seats. <laughs> crazy, crazy. She was not having it. But so things that we can do to protect ourselves. So you know, wear your clothes into the hospital, get into scrubs in the locker room and leave those dirty scrubs that you rounded in all day in the hospital. And maybe even have a pair of hospital shoes, your clogs, your dance clothes, whatever, and just commit to not wearing those shoes home or into your house because you don't want to track germs in your house. A lot of providers that I've talked to are stripping in their garage or stripping at the front door and running and jumping into the shower to hopefully avoid bringing home any viruses or bacteria that they may have picked up in the hospital. That's even if you're coming home, not in scrubs, like in regular clothes, they're Mm -hmm. still stripping. Yeah. So when I was on this conference call with all of these doctors, and many of them were like ER docs and hospitalists in the Seattle, Washington area, where we were first, you know, really hard hit with this virus. And I'm like, this is so bizarre to me. You guys just started this. Like I used to do that 100% of the time for like the first four years of my daughter's life. And it just was because I had an infant at home. I had a toddler at home. She's crawling on the floor. She's picking up stuff off the floor, eating off the floor. So I literally used to get home, take my shoes off the door, say, hold the baby, go run, strip. And if I didn't shower, I would wash like my face, neck, chest, and up to my elbows and change my clothes. So this was norm for me. Yes, you got ID doc. This is is your normal life. (laughs) This is our norm. And so I'm like, but this should be everybody in the hospital's norm. But it's not because when it's not a COVID-19 situation and when it's not, you know, a 2008, 2009 H1N1 flu pandemic, that's different than our norm. We kind of disregard the MRSA and the Pseudomonas and the CREs and the ESBLs. And, you know, we tease the ID team and say they're the hand-washing police. But now everybody wants to be friends with the hand-washing police because we've always operated in a way that was like preparing for this. It's like, this is our moment. (laughs) And you should do 20 seconds because I saw a video actually. It was a simulation where, you know, they had this hand lotion and then they had a black light and they put it all over their hands and they actually showed what happens, how much soap or how much of this lotion is left on your hands if you just wash your hands for five seconds. And then if you wash your hands for 10 seconds and then the magical that everybody should be doing 20 seconds. It makes a huge difference. Makes a huge difference. So everybody should be washing your hands for at least 20 seconds. That's right. And call people out on it. It's so funny. I've taught my daughter to like call people out in public restrooms when they don't wash their hands or when they don't wash their hands properly. Because, yeah, she's just, you know how kids are. They want to drink from a water fountain. They want to touch everything. I'll get the door. Like, nope, don't touch that. Don't touch that button on that hand dryer. Like, it's all nasty. Watch how we wash our hands and then watch how other people wash their hands or don't wash their hands. You know, people do that quick little, just rub their palms together five times, shake the water off and go. 
What about the web spaces of your fingers? What about underneath your fingernails? What about your thumbs? Like your thumbs are like your most useful finger, but they're like your most unwashed finger. (laughs) (laughs) Show our thumbs some love. (laughs) So let me ask you this question because I want to show the locums doctors some love, mainly because I'm traveling too. So what about this whole, because there's some hospitals that I think are tripping, but tell me if this is tripping or not that. They want you to self-quarantine, particularly if you're in an area or you're coming from an area that has a lot of infections. So Mm -hmm. if you live in the New York, New Jersey area, or you're from California or Texas, and maybe you're flying to the Midwest, some of these hospitals are saying that, you know, you may need to self-quarantine for about 14 days before you can actually start working. Before you do your next job. Yeah. Is that an overreaction or tell us about that? I don't think it's an overreaction. I mean, Even if you're asymptomatic, like you have no symptoms at all. So the problem is, is that we know that asymptomatic carriers can spread this infection or, you know, you're spreading the infection while you're asymptomatic. And by the time you begin having symptoms, you know, go get tested and figure out, okay, now I have COVID. How many people did you infect along the way? So we really can't afford for our frontline to be infecting patients as they go along because you know, people forget, like, this isn't the only thing our healthcare systems are taking care of right now. We still got flu. We still got all the other viral infections that can cause pneumonia and respiratory distress in people of all ages. We still got heart attacks, strokes, trauma, stabbing, gunshot, car accidents, all of those things all coming into the healthcare system competing for available beds. And so we've taken our normal influx in hospitals that are always running at capacity or near capacity. And now we're just dumping a whole bunch more patients into the system that are way sicker than we're accustomed to taking care of. So we can't have our healthcare providers coming in the door and spreading infection. But I think the infection control should go both ways. I think not only should providers, you know, screen themselves, check their temperature, really monitor and be vigilant about symptoms and pull themselves out of work If they are symptomatic, and I realize that healthcare systems aren't necessarily allowing for that to happen because they don't have bodies to put in place of people, the healthcare systems and the patients, to me, also have a responsibility to protect providers as well and to provide appropriate personal protective equipment to healthcare providers to really be open and honest about what they're seeing in terms of the number of cases. Are there providers being infected or affected by the virus to offer providers also relief? You know, people are working around the clock. I've talked to so many people who, you know, worked six days on a night shift, came home in the morning, and then they're going back to work in 12 hours. And now they're starting a day shift without an appropriate period of rest in between, talking to ER doctors and hospitalists. Dressing the system like crazy. So if you have someone in the hospital, let's say, for example, me, like I'm seeing some consults. I see someone who is either being isolated because they're getting tested for COVID-19. I have to go see that patient, which happened to me. Um, Or let's say someone is positive and you have to go and evaluate them. When it's time to go home, like, do you have to self-quarantine, protect your family? What are the things, the considerations that you have to think about in those types of situations where people may have it or suspected of having it or may have it, and then it's time for you to kind of come home and you have a loved one or what have you? How do you do that? So I think even with personal protective equipment at play, just because the exposure is so high risk, and if there's one patient in the hospital who got tested, you don't know how many patients are in the hospital who haven't even yet been considered that you're still seeing and being exposed to. So to me, consider all patients 
possible risk. Consider your colleagues possible risk. Consider the clerk on the unit a risk, the phlebotomist a risk, right? And we're not interacting. Once you put it like that, it really puts things in perspective, yeah. Right? So at home, I would practice a little bit of social distance. Like if your wife is taking care of the babies, then unfortunately she got to hold down the fort with the babies. Or you put on a mask when you're taking care of them. Because if anything, you're going to cough it out, sneeze it out, or breathe it onto them. You're a surgeon. I know you know how to wash your hands. Hand hygiene is not a thing that I'm worried about for you, right? But I wouldn't expect you to walk through the door and dive right in. Like You need a moment to go shower, wash your hair, scrub your skin vigorously, and then try to do some social distancing at home. But you guys got two small kids at home. And you know people have two, three, four, five kids or... It's just one kid and somebody who's been at home all day and caregiver burnout is real too, you know? Trying to do some social distancing would be my suggestion. And it can be done within a household. You know, somebody sleeping on the couch and somebody sleeping in the bedroom or somebody is preparing the meals and being the sole and primary caregiver for children. That's not unreasonable for those of us who are in ERs and rounding in hospitals all day because You don't want to develop symptoms and then realize, dang, I was just snuggling with the kiddos or I was just loving up on the missus and now we got to get them tested too. And not to say they wouldn't still have to be tested, but wouldn't you feel a lot more comfortable if you didn't just proceed as if everything was normal and regular in the days preceding, if God forbid you spiked a fever, developed a cough, or, you know, found out you had a definitive exposure where you weren't protected. No, this is good. Yeah, I always tell people like, you don't want to have the coulda, woulda, shouldas about it. And then for the timeframes, especially for the locum stocks where you are out of work for a prolonged period of time, if you're symptom-free for 14 days, then you probably are good, but we're still going to proceed with caution because you still don't want to pick things up in the community. I think as I'm touching my face, (laughs) as I'm about to ask you this next question. You know, I think that the thing that we don't really consider is one, we're vulnerable as professionals, Mm -hmm. right? We look Mm -hmm. at ourselves as Superman, Superwoman, or this thing can affect me, right? Because, you know, for me as a trauma surgeon, you see people at their worst, but you quickly move on or there's, there's that psychological distance that you have with a patient, right? Yeah. And you move on from next to next to next, but you forget that, wow, you can literally in these times bring illness to your patient or vice versa these times, and then you can go and infect someone else. So you have to be really, really vigilant at this point. And then the other thing that we don't consider is as physicians and even as locums docs, like how the economical process or how this can really affect us economically, right? Because like you said, if you're in a hotspot and now you can't work for 14 days, or maybe they want you to quarantine not in that high infection area, now you got to quarantine at that other place, And if the hospital is not going to pay for it, we're talking about you're getting a hotel room, you're eating hotel food on your own dime while you're self-quarantining. I mean, this, from a financial standpoint, is affecting everyone in every single way. It's crazy. Yeah, it's already wreaked havoc on me. In the last two weeks, I've lost $8,300 in income from speaking gigs canceled, conferences canceled. And $8,300 was like the guaranteed money. That's not to say that I wouldn't have made more money by selling products or selling coaching services as a result of those speaking engagements and vending and things like that. So 8,300 was like the guaranteed income that I had coming in that I lost in the last two weeks. And that is going to continue to roll forward. And so one thing that this has showed me is that it's not your money and you can't count it until it's in your hand. 
you know, you can have whatever contract you want to have, but this is a an act of God, an impossibility or whatever it is. It's a natural disaster almost. Right. If you can't show up and do the work, like it might as well have been a tsunami that came through and wiped us all out financially. And then the other thing is like stocks are dropping and all of that stuff. And I'm like, you know what? Not to say we shouldn't invest and, you know, take care of our debts and all of those things, but it's almost like imaginary money that's like here one moment and gone the next in the blink of an eye. You just can't predict these kinds of things, but that's why you got to have your liquid cash. Emergency funds, Dr. Alexia, emergency funds. But even if you think about it too, you know, like it's just the type of world that we live in, right? Like you think that these natural disasters won't necessarily affect us, but even from an emergency fund standpoint, like if you put your money, you know, you talk about the money not being visible, right? Right. Like if the banks go down and you have your emergency fund, you can't get the money from the bank. You banks. can't get the money from the bank. You're screwed in that situation. You can't go out to an ATM because of X, Y, and Z. You know, like these are things that you oftentimes, you know, you read about in books or you watch The Walking Dead or whatever. Mm-hmm. Ain't gonna, that ain't going to happen. There's so many different redundancies yeah. in our world that it won't happen. And you just look at today and you're just like, that's true. Like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> I've always been wondering, like, why all these zombie apocalypse shows and movies? <laughs> what are they trying to prepare us for? And now it's like, is that what it's going to look like? Are we going to be like fighting each other in the street for food? There's already people scamming people, you know, coming to their houses, pretending that they're offering mobile testing. Just give us your credit card number or give us a check and emptying out people's bank accounts around this thing. What other scams and schemes are there? I've heard about so much crazy random stuff, but even just watching people fight over toilet paper. I always just thought like our lowest of low is like Black Friday every year. We act like animals. We act like we never had anything before. People get run over, stomped on. Yeah, but like we just take it as a step lower, not even fighting over appliances. Now we're going to fight over some toilet paper. So people's fear is that, you know, is it going to be like this with food? What if trade is affected and planes stop coming in and trucks stop moving about the country? Are we going to be in a situation where we're rationing food and things like that? And I don't think so. I know we have more than enough in this country to feed our country and feed a couple of other small countries and large countries. You never know how things can go. I mean, you can just imagine the absolute worst possibilities, but you have to pull yourself out of that level of fear and anxiety provoking thoughts and just say, you know what, what do we have? What's our contingency plan? You know, how much food do we have? How much? longer is it going to last us? Let's get out and go to the grocery store and buy things that are going to last on the shelf for a while, but also consider our fellow man and not buy the whole row of macaroni and craft macaroni and cheese. As you know, my friend witnessed a guy took every box of macaroni in the grocery store home with him. (laughs) We got to be a bit more considerate of one another. But right now we're talking about us docs and how we can take care of ourselves and our families. So we'll stick with that. I think, you know, the fact that we continue to show up to work every day in offices and hospitals and emergency rooms and urgent cares is doing the best we can do for our fellow man and putting our lives on the line and putting our families on the line. So mm. so there it is, Dr. Alexia. Well, listen, thank you so much for coming on the show impromptu to talk about this. Where can the audience learn more about you? How can they get in touch with you? So the best way to get in touch with me is to follow me on my social media accounts. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Dr. Alexia. That is D-R-A-L-E-X-E-A. Again, that's Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Dr. Alexia, D-R-A-L-E-X-E-A. And then look out for the launch of DrAlexia.com this spring. Awesome. Awesome. 
We got to do it again. Hopefully Absolutely. not under these circumstances. Right? <laughs> We're going to talk about your docs outside the box journey next, okay? Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs>